and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Hello. Kobus, 30 years ago, when China first opened its door to the outside world and started on this really amazing journey of economic reform that has led it to be one of the poorest countries in the world to now the world's second largest economy, a central component of that were special economic zones. And they started with that in places like Shenzhen, which is now the the, the southern capital for startup tech, where the home of Huawei. And, uh, and you could never have imagined 30 years ago, and I was in Shenzhen 30 years ago, and it was this poor you know, fishing village. And today, of course, it's a city of 10 to 12 million people. And a lot of it is being credited to the creation of these industrial parks or these special economic zones that they did. Now, more and more, the Chinese seem to be taking that model and wanting to prescribe it in other countries. And particularly in Africa, there's this idea that creating special economic zones uh, in places like Mauritius, in Nigeria, uh, and in Zambia uh, will help the economy there just as it did here. But there's an offshoot of these special economic zones, which are oftentimes tax-free, and they're, they're immune from a lot of the regulatory burdens that confront other parts of the countries. Um, there are these industrial parks. And again, we're going to find out today a little bit the difference between special economic zones and industrial parks. But the bottom line is that the Chinese model is being attempted to be adapted in places like Africa. One of the places in Africa that really took to this like a duck to water has been Ethiopia. They really jumped on this model um, and they provided a lot of government incentives to Chinese businesses. And that coupled with, with financing from China means that Ethiopia is now known as this kind of special economic zone success story in Africa. Um, it's certainly being hyped in that way um, with large Chinese garment companies and other companies setting up business there and Ethiopia using a newly built Chinese rail link to the harbor in Djibouti to position itself as this manufacturing and assembly center that can also export to Europe. So in a lot of success stories, a lot of enthusiastic accounts of Chinese development in Africa, Ethiopia is front and central. And one of the showcases is Hawassa. There's an industrial park that was built there. It's by the Chinese. Uh, it covers something around 300 hectares, about 741 acres. And uh, it came at the price of about $250 million, which the government paid for. And in many ways, as Kobus pointed out, it is a showcase for what the Chinese are doing in building these industrial parks. Uh, William Davison is a freelance journalist based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And he recently covered for the Guardian newspaper in the UK uh, what it's like for work workers and and how the success of these parks are actually going. William, thank you so much for joining us on your holiday. We really appreciate it. First time on the show. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Hawassa Industrial Park and uh, what what's it doing, who are there, and just give us a broad overview of the park before we get into the details of who's benefiting most from these parks. Okay, yeah, sure. So um, the park is, the Hawassa Industrial Park is, is one of a number of, of, of similar parks that the Ethiopian government is building. Um, and it's pretty much the sort of latest stage of, of Ethiopia's effort um, at rap- rapid industrialization. Um, so there's been a big infrastructure building program, including Chinese built railways and and Chinese companies and banks helping to build hydropower dams. And now the government's trying to capitalize on those infrastructure developments by building these manufacturing 
facilities. Um, because, you know, while Ethiopia has had impressive economic growth, um, partly, you know, thanks to the Chinese investment and assistance, um, what we haven't seen yet is, you know, significant um, generation of, of, of export revenues. Um, a lot of the growth has been from the from the public spending. So they're looking to capitalize on the infrastructure spending by building manufacturing centers. And, and out of those manufacturing centers, Hawassa is very much the flagship project. Um, so it's a government-owned facility. Um, it was, uh, you know, the government invested, um, um, invested into the park, but it was Chinese construction and companies that um, that built the sheds and the other infrastructure. Um, and the essential idea is to create a zone um, or a, a park um, which is fully supplied with all the necessary um, infrastructure, but also public services like water and electricity, um, but also all the business administration facilities that are needed. Um, so to create an to create an area where you've got an agglomeration of, of companies and it's and it's well serviced um, by what the companies need to. Um, to, to produce goods for exports. And Hawassa Industrial Park is very much focused on um, textiles and garments. Um, and I think the other significant aspect of it is, is that well as this big Chinese involvement in terms of the construction um, of the park, the major investor has been PVH, um, the American multinational um, clothes retailer, um, the owner of um, the sort of Calvin Klein's and, and Tommy Hilfiger brands. So they've been the sort of anchor investor in the park. Um, they've helped to, to design and, and establish the park with the government. And PVH has um, brought over some of its suppliers from, from South Asia and East Asia um, to operate in the, in the park as well. Um, so I think that's the, that's the that's the basic idea behind it. Can you give us an idea of what it looks like? Like what what is it like to arrive there, and what is it like to walk around there? Um, it's a very well for e Ethiopia. Um, it's a, you know it's it's a very impressive in terms of scale. It's a very impressive industrial structure. Um, you know, when I visited um, late last year, you know, it was still at this still at the stage where it was taking off. Um, so it's it's a it's a it's a very clean looking, um, gigantic industrial space with populated by something like fifty huge factory sheds and these large sweeping driveways and sort of manicured lawns um, on the edge of Hawassa, uh, which is a, a, a pleasant city, but you know is is a growing um, is a growing Ethiopian city, and, and so is it, you know there's a certain amount of um, sort of rough edges to Hawassa, so the park. The park stands out as a very you know, clean cut, um, clean cut space on the edge of the city. I think it's worth kind of giving some context as to why the Chinese might be building facilities like this uh, in places like Ethiopia. And, and, and I'm really going to be quoting Helen High here, who actually has a connection to Ethiopia. For those of you not familiar with Helen, uh, she is the former vice president of the Huajin Shoe Company, which is one of the largest shoe manufacturers, and they set up. Uh, a major manufacturing facility in Ethiopia, in some ways the poster child of Chinese outsourcing to Africa. And she talks about how China will be exporting 85 million jobs in the coming years, in part because environmental regulations are going up here in China, the cost of labor is going up, and also because manufacturers want to be closer to the markets they're serving. But also importantly for Africa, uh, Africa has 
tariff-free access into the U.S. market. So that makes sense. And this as coming with a potential trade conflict with the United States may make sense for Chinese companies to diversify some of their manufacturing operations. Now, if you listen to Helen High, she is a huge champion of building manufacturing facilities in Africa, particularly in places like uh, Ethiopia. And the government in Ethiopia is also very, very rah, rah, rah about this. They're hoping to generate, as you said in your reporting, William, 200,000 jobs a year through these parks. Uh, and, and the expectations are running very, very high at that these parks will be able to do it. The problem is not everybody is on board with Helen. A lot of people think that the Chinese, if they are going to outsource, are going to start outsourcing here in Asia and may not all go to Africa. And the jobs that do end up going to Africa may not actually be that good. So tell us a little bit about the life of the workers and the people who actually work in these facilities. And are they living up to the hype that the government and people like Helen High are promoting? Yeah, good question. Um, I think what we're looking at here is, is sort of different visions um, for Ethiopia's development and also different priorities um, within the within the competing visions. Um, so, in terms of the Chinese manufacturers um, and the Ethiopian government, um, the Chinese manufacturers are, are very much looking at the um, relatively cheap costs of production in Ethiopia, which is some of the world's um, lowest wages, which is some of the world's lowest electricity costs, um, and that combined with the attractive investment package in terms of cheap um, cheap rent, um, tax holidays, and also the tariff-free access to European and U.S. markets that you mentioned. Um, so that's the that's the side of the deal from the Chinese companies. From the Ethiopian government's perspective, what they are looking at is the quick provision um, of a number of jobs for a growing, a growing and increasingly urbanized, um, urbanizing population, um, and they are looking at generating. Um, export revenues, which can then be um, hopefully invested into um, increasingly productive um, economic projects. Um, and they are also very much, um, um, they're looking to increase, um, enhance Ethiopia's reputation as an investment destination. But, but is it working though? Is it, is it working though? Are they, are they actually doing that? That's what they're hoping for. But I'm wondering if they're actually doing it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're at a very early stage. Um, so what, what we can say right now, something like Hawasso, is, is the government has done well to provide the infrastructure and to attract the investment and some jobs are being created. But I think part of this package is that while jobs are being created and the investors are being attracted, that is because of the very low wages that the jobs pay. So there's a, you know, there's a contradiction there or there's, you know, there's a tension. You cannot provide the jobs and get the investment if the jobs are paying good wages. So there really is a, you know, a clear sacrifice being made by the Ethiopian government and by Ethiopian workers. They can only get the investment if the wages are kept at a certain level. Um, now, is that working for the Ethiopian workers? Well, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, the people I spoke to, you know, they were, some of them were glad to have moved from the countryside and to have a job, but others realized that the job wasn't all it was cracked up to be. They were struggling to meet living costs because of the increase in, um, in, in house rent that had come with the influx of workers 
So there was, you know, there were definite problems for some of them. Um, and obviously, you know, a lot of Ethiopians, particularly people who are opposed to the government, are not happy with this strategy to sort of roll out the red carpet for foreign investors, which they see to be at the expense of a very underpaid Ethiopian workforce. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a tricky question. And I think one familiar to these sort of conundrums that there are about development in places like Ethiopia, because other people, I, I spoke to the economist Stefan Durkon, um, and they are looking at this, this being the beginning of Ethiopia replicating an Asian style model, um, which is a transformation to something, an economy dominated by agriculture into an industrial economy. And while they recognize that what we have now is not perfect in terms of the investment and the industrialization, it is the beginnings. Like we have this labor intensive manufacturing now. Um, hopefully that will lead into higher value adding manufacturing in the future and Ethiopia, Ethiopia's economy will, will grow like that and it, and it will find its way out of the poverty trap. Um, but obviously whether this is a success is, is, is not something we can tell now. Um, we're just right at the beginning of the industrial park project and we will have to wait you know, something like five or ten years to, to make an assessment. Can you give us an idea of who these workers are? Like my, my stereotype of them would be, you know, a young woman who just moved from the countryside, possibly from some form of subsistence agriculture uh, economy into the, the, a first manufacturing job, possibly with, with relatively low levels, probably primary school level of education. As, am I just making that up from, you know, like UN commercials or is, is that a realistic view of, of who they are? No, I think that's I think that's a reasonable stereotype. Um, it was interesting to see at Hawassa that you know, Hawassa is a big a big city um, in Ethiopian terms, but they were recruiting from a hundred mile radiate radius of Hawassa, so they were looking to recruit from rural areas and, and smaller towns um, where there's generally an even higher unemployment problem. And but there is a range of jobs at Hawassa Industrial Park, so you know graduates from Hawassa University can find themselves into um, into supervisory positions. People who are graduating from technical colleges from Hawassa or, or surrounding cities can move into sort of machine operating roles. Um, but anyone um, essentially um, who applies can find themselves into a, a you know, a, a basic position working on the production lines or, or cleaning. So, you know, there's, there's a range of, of, of people, um, but most of the people are from the areas surrounding Hawassa. Um, most of them will have um, some form of education. Um, some of them will have, uh, have had tertiary education. Kobus, let me come to you very quickly on this. There's been, you're hearing in what William is saying in terms of the hope that African countries can follow the example of what's happened here in China. So when you look at the economic development of Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Vietnam, and of course China, uh, a lot of it happened with these types of policies. Um, and, and I'm wondering if if you think that if there's any legitimacy to that, that that model can translate to Africa. And I will say, I don't think it can because the governance and the culture are so different. But I'd like to get your take. Do you think that this is an exportable model from Asia to Africa? Well, it has been exported to other places, you know, the way that it was exported from East Asia to Southeast Asia, for example, So, I, you know, and to places like Bangladesh. So in, in terms of its pure exportability as a, as a model, I don't particularly see why it can't. Um, the issue, I think, becomes a lot about, you know, African ideas about life and the future. Um, and there you have a bunch of different competing issues. The key one, I think, that is frequently... Um, 
um, underestimated maybe by people in the West is the massive crisis of unemployment in Africa. Like I think it's it's much worse than people tend to assume. There are villages in rural South Africa where which has an 80% unemployment rate. And then you talk about youth unemployment rates that are frequently even higher than general unemployment rates. So in a lot of African countries, that is a kind of a time bomb. Because keep in, keep in mind that African Africa has some of the youngest populations in the world. So they have a massive youth bulge. Um, and the majority of those young people are unemployed and therefore frustrated and you see you know when you long-term unemployment of course you have a, a long-term erosion of skills and an erosion of confidence as well um, so I think that there is a kind of a very hard-nosed obsession among African governments to try and mop up all of these unemployed people to just give them something to do even if they're not super well paid. On the other hand, there is also, you know, Africa comes from a long tradition of exploitation and poverty. So there's a there's a strong kind of, especially I, I'm talking from a South African perspective, I don't know East Africa as well, but in South Africa there's a very strong like knee-jerk reaction against this idea of like, well, people will be paid peanuts and then the future will be better. Um, because South Africa has a very strong union sector and it's, it's organized labor sector is, is very organized um, and, and very vocal. So in that sense, in, in particularly implementing that model in South Africa seems like a, a tough sell, but Ethiopia is a different model. And of course, Ethiopian is, Ethiopia is a much more authoritarian society. Um, so I think there, that is a key difference. Um, William, as, as someone who spends a lot of time in East Africa, um, if you were com to compare the system you know, implementing it in Ethiopia and implementing it in a place like Kenya, for example, like would that be a significantly more challenging situation to implement it in a in a democracy like Kenya? Yeah, I think if I just wanted just wanted to revert to the um, to the, the the previous question that was that was being asked, um, which I think will in, inform that one as well. Um, just to say, you know, will this success strategy that's been successful in East Asia will it be successful in somewhere like Ethiopia? Um, I definitely don't really see sort of long-lasting problems in terms of the culture and 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 things like that. Um, you know, and what we do, like I so said, the positive side in Ethiopia is that we have a government which is very committed to this strategy. Um, but that is also part of the reason why we would have doubts about whether this strategy would be successful. You know, this is a this is a government which is facing. Um, significant political challenges. Um, you know, as you, as you mentioned, it's an authoritarian setup in Ethiopia, and and currently we're seeing quite a sustained um, political crisis. So it's it's going to be interesting to see whether the government can remain committed to its industrial development strategy if these political problems worsen. Um, I, you know, and I think I think that's going to be key to it. The other factor is that. You know, along with the government's commitment to this strategy, has come a you know a, a very ambitious development strategy, which has done well at attracting companies like PVH or forming strong bilateral relations with very important countries like China. Um, but it also means that sometimes the ambition has outstripped the capacity of the government and the country and the economy to supply what is needed. So when we're looking at something like this industrial park, you know, currently there are very few supply industries um, for, the, for, you know, for the textiles and clothes, for example. Almost everything is imported because the Ethiopian economy is not up to speed in terms of 
in terms of producing those inputs. We're also looking at an economy which is going to, especially if the investment takes off in the way that people hope, it may struggle to provide the necessary administration in terms of taxes, um, in terms of customs, um, you know, particularly with all this importing that that is needed to be done. Um, whether you know, immigration requirements for the foreign workers and the foreign managers that need to come in. You know, it's not clear that the government's administrative capacity is going to be able to keep up. And then accompanying that is these infrastructure questions. We've had lots of infrastructure development, but there's still more still needs to be done in terms of the roads, um, in terms of the railway network, definitely, and in terms of a reliable south power supply as well. So it's questionable whether the sequencing of the infrastructure development and then trying to have the manufacturing on the back of that is going to be successful. Um, and, and so just to briefly you know, speak to you about the, the East Africa question, um, you know, I think the advantage in Ethiopia is that for the moment, we have a very single-minded government committed to industrial development of this type, and that it faces no serious opposition from society. So Unlike Kenya, which is a you know, much more pluralistic setup, um, we have a government that formulates a plan and, and then implements it. Um, but that's fine until it, the government faces these serious political challenges, which is something which is an, an increasing concern for, for all Ethiopians and, and everyone who's, who's observing the country at the moment. I guess you've touched on a lot of the reasons why I'm skeptical that Africa will be able to emulate the Asian model, in part because so many people focus on labor cost. And labor, as you pointed out, is just one small part of a much more complex matrix that has to be put together in order to build a, a reliably stable in, industrial base. So in, in, in Vietnam, for example, the rail-to-port connections are, are getting better. The supply chains, it's not just having a factory, but as you pointed out, all the suppliers that are around it. When you look at the industrial zones in southern China and they're building cell phones, they have 55 companies that are around there providing the, the, the just-in-time manufacturing support for that. So there's so much more, not even to talk about the legal reforms that have to be done and the tax reforms and all of that and immigrations you've talked about. And I'm just not sure that many African countries are actually ready for that when they focus mostly on what Cobus pointed out, which is this labor question. So on, on I don't want to end on a negative note necessarily, but I'd like to get your take in, in our final question here about when you walked away from the Hawassa Industrial Park, what was your sense? Your sense is this a good idea? Do you think the Chinese are onto something in building these parks in places like Ethiopia, or were you skeptical and thinking, mm, "Is this going to work?" I'm not sure. What was your takeaway from it? I think. I mean, I, I did have a balanced takeaway, um, but I think there was an overarching concern, which which fitted into some, you know, to, to some to sort of preconceptions essentially, which is, you know, has this been planned correctly? Um, has everything been thought about? Which, of course, is a very necessary thing in this sort of state planning exercise. Because, you know, we had this housing situation in Hawassa where the, the rental prices had shot up because of the influx of workers and, and people couldn't afford it. And, you know, you're just looking at that one part of the jigsaw that they did not get right. And then I'm thinking about the much larger pieces of the jigsaw. You know, I have investors talking to me about how soon um, the industrial park will be connected seamlessly to the port um, via a railway or via an expressway, a, you know, a new motorway, a new freeway. But I can see that that freeway isn't going to be in place for four years' time. And then I can see that, you know, that all the political problems with uh, popular uprisings that are, that are causing the closure of that road 
en route to the port. And I think, well, you know, has this been thought about? And then when you expand the industrial park nationally, it does seem that the, the parks have been placed to sort of placate Ethiopia's various regional political interests and to tap into labor markets. And you, they haven't necessarily thought about the ecosystems that surround those industrial parks. So are they going to face, you know, intensified problems um, even compared to Hawassa? So, you know, I go to the park and I see a very dedicated, you know, example of very dedicated, um, pretty comprehensive state planning. And, and, you know, I see a vision which has been realized. But then I think about actually turning that initial success into a you know, sustained success where the company, the workers, the government and everyone else is happy. And, and I find it difficult to conceive of that. And I, and I see lots of problems um, emerging in the future for the various parties. The article is Park Life Workers Struggle to Make Ends Meet at Ethiopia's $250 million Industrial Zone. It was in The Guardian on December 5th, 2017. It's an excellent read and, and very you know insightful on this, this trend that we've been having a discussion about over the past few years about African industrialization and China's role in it. William Davison is a freelance correspondent based in Addis Ababa. William, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. And... If people want to follow you, are you on social media? Are you on Twitter? Yes, far too much. Um, w Davison 10 is my uh, Twitter handle. Great. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Kobus, we've been having this discussion over the past, I'd say, six months now about this question of African industrialization and China's role in it. And on the one hand, we've got people like Helen Hai and Irene Yuan Sun, who we interviewed recently about her book about the role of Chinese private sector companies in Africa. And both of them are real optimists about the the shift of manufacturing from China to places like Africa. But on the other hand, there are people like Kai Xue, who's an attorney based in Beijing, who is quite active on social media and writes extensively about how he does not think that uh, the Chinese will actually come to places like Africa because they have so many more choices now in Southeast Asia, along the Belt and Road, and it's not the same way it was 10 or 15 years ago. And then you have the data that speaks to us about declining trade volumes, net emigration of Chinese immigrants out of Africa, uh, companies like Sinopec, which we just saw closing, potentially closing down their operations in Gabon and uh, in Nigeria, and generally a less of an appetite for the risk that Africa poses to many investments. And so for me, it's very, very difficult to get a sense of which way this trend is going. Uh, and I, you know, I don't want to necessarily take a position on it because I just don't think there's a clear enough visibility as to whether or not this trend of Chinese migration of, of, of manufacturing will actually happen or not. I think Ethiopia is going to be a key test case in, 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 this, in this discussion. If Ethiopia works, um, if this kind of industrial park development in Ethiopia works even, you know, halfway, um, it, that, that'll, you know, add a lot of momentum um, and it will allow the China-Africa relationship to segue into something, you know, post-extractive industries. Um, you know, Ethiopia is on the Belt and Road route. It is 
very well positioned to export to, to Europe, for example, and to the Middle East in case it, they can make it work. So if they can make it work, then that will, you know, provide this kind of model for the future. Um, if it can't make it work, then it, it I think, casts a lot of the of future China-Africa relations, relations in doubt. Um, because then it really, you know, the relationship really does come down to whether, to how much, you know, raw manganese China wants to buy. Um, and that would be a massive tragedy for Africa because there's so much riding on this idea of of Africa managing to finally make that leap into into manufacturing. Um, you know, so, so it's, like a, it's like a big historical drama in a way. But it has to make that leap into manufacturing because where else are people going to be employed? Uh, people aren't going, you know, the millions of unemployed or underemployed young people in Africa are not going to work on the farms because there just isn't a demand for that type of labor. So what happens if this doesn't work out? Yeah, well, I mean, that is the that is the big question, you know, like, you, you know, mass wasting of human resources and, you, you know, mass, mass trashing of human dreams. Africa isn't a stranger to that situation. Um, but at the same time, you know, like there, there is, a, you know, many leaders in Africa who are trying to, to push towards this kind of um, this kind of development. I mean, you, you mentioned working on the farm. I mean, the other the other leg of of this of a new discussion on African development is the uh, kind of a is calling for a lot more attention to be paid to mass agriculture um, so that so working on the farm might have more option more potential than it seems um, but it would be a different kind of farm than the one we see in Africa at the moment but yeah you know the, the that is the that is the big question I mean you know it could simply fail you know and it might it, it could so fail because of, of internal African problems but it could also fail because of things like the end of AGOA for example the uh, the African Growth and Opportunity Act which is the the US act that would allow uh, you know low tariff or no tariff imports from Africa which is one of the reasons I think why an American garment company would be investing there in the first place um, so if AGOA ends in 2025 which is its its newest cutoff date um, you know that could dramatically you know, you know, um, obstruct these kind of plans. So, I mean, we'll have to see. It's not only up to Africa. And it's worth noting that while Ethiopia definitely gets most of the headlines, it's not the only place uh, in Africa that Chinese companies are investing in manufacturing. The auto business uh, is now spreading across the continent. There was news recently that um, Chinese auto manufacturers are setting up in Morocco to build electric vehicles. There's auto manufacturing in Cameroon. And of course, in South Africa, uh, quite a bit of manufacturing is already going on, whether it's white goods from companies like Hisense or auto, automotive in places like Port Elizabeth. So Ethiopia definitely gets the attention, but it would be incorrect to suggest that it is the only focal point of Chinese manufacturing in Africa. Last point, uh, Kobus, that I want to bring up with you is that we do focus so much on on Ethiopia, but I just wonder if Ethiopia is an exceptional case and maybe not healthy for us to, to, to look at it, in part because of this question of authoritarianism. And, and this goes back to our earlier discussion versus democracies and authoritarian governments in Africa. And I just wonder if a government, say, like in Zambia, which is much less dictatorial than in, in Ethiopia, not dictatorial at all, it's a democracy, um, if they could pull off something like, like what the Ethiopians are doing? Or is, does this type of development do better in authoritarian environments 
as incidentally in Asia when most of these economies like Taiwan and Korea and, and Vietnam, for the most part, were all authoritarian. So I just wonder if this type of development can actually happen in a democracy. It's an excellent question, one that I have difficulty answering, but I agree with you that that is the little part of the Asian developmental model that no one ever mentions. It's in almost all cases, it took place in an authoritarian environment. In Taiwan, in Japan, in you know early Japan in the 50s and 60s, in Korea, it, they were all military governments or one part, like de facto one party states. Um, the the other issue I think that that is also not mentioned is that they were always in this kind of um you know, a, a kind of a nation state or even, you can even call it like a kind of an ethno state, you know, where where there was this perfect overlap between national culture, national language, government, political party and a, a unified national identity. Um, you see that in Korea very strongly. Um you know, so so this so the the way to sell this kind of low wage labor, you know, work work hard for terrible wages for hours and hours and hours. You know, that's not a great deal. Um, the way to sell it is frequently to sell it through patriotism and to sell it through. You know, we we are us Koreans, for example, are now are sacrificing now for future generations. Of Koreans, so in in a case like Africa, where the political system is a lot more complex, where there's a lot more different ethnic groups, where you you don't have this one-on-one overlap between the nation state and the nation, it becomes a harder sell, I think. This is one of the most important issues in the China-Africa relationship, and it's going to be one that will actually shape the future of Africa in in a very profound way, whether it succeeds or fails. But whether or not Africa industrializes is going to be a key question. And really, the Chinese, in many ways, are the people to do it because not only of their own experience over the past 30 years, but they are the ones who have a motivation to do it because they need to offshore more and more of their manufacturing from here in China to other parts of the world. Africa must compete for that manufacturing. It cannot expect that it will come to them simply because countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam are also competing for those jobs as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week, but we would love for you to join our conversation. Kobus and I, we're sending out an email every Monday. It's this newsletter where we basically curate the top news of the week. So if you're really not that intent on getting too much China African news, but just want a little appetizer, that is a great way to do it. You can sign up for our newsletter over on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa Podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.